0: Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life.
1: Welcome to Snap Snips. I'm Dr. Troy and uh, today with Dr. Josh, we're going to be talking about why we don't lose weight. So this time of year, people are coming out of the Christmas season, the uh, winter up here in the north and people tend to pack on the pounds and uh, a lot of times they, we see them and uh, they just do what they were used to do and the weight's not coming off
2: hear that all the time. So uh, let's talk about why we don't lose weight. Yeah. We have a good list of eight things that we'll talk about and try to talk about all these. And we're going to start with the most, I think the most commonly blamed reason. Yeah, And I'm going to say it that way because we see that it's not the primary issue in a lot of people. It can be in some, but it's calorie in versus calorie out. It's the balance between what you eat from calories and what you burn for calories. And not to say that that's not important, that you have to have calories to pack on weight. But at the same time, in order to lose weight, we hear all the time, well, I changed my diet, I hardly eat anything, I'm tracking my calories, and I'm under 2,000 calories, and I keep gaining weight. Yes, I've had people even fast for three or four days and gain weight. Mm -hmm. If that happens, you know there's a
1: problem. There's something else to it. And there used to be a time, maybe 60, 70 years ago, that you just reduce a little bit of the food you were eating and then the weight would come off very quickly. Mm-hmm. But our metabolism is very different than what it used to be, meaning that we we're not quite as efficient at uh, taking in calories and burning them off as we used to be. And that's really the big problem. And the other seven markers on uh, that we're going to talk about here are seven causes really help explain
2: the reason why. Yeah, yeah. So even I, I, what I tell my patients is that Diet is a good foundation, but it's not the only thing that you need in order to lose weight. People come in thinking they just need to tweak their diet or they've gone through 5, 10, 15 fad diets and tried this or that. And sometimes they're successful, but very often if it's successful, it's not long lived. Yes. Often because of these other issues that we're going to discuss or because the lifestyle that they've are trying to accomplish isn't sustainable. Now, I think the, the second biggest item that people blame besides calories are genetics. They'll say, well, you know, everybody in my family's overweight. And so I'm just, I'm bound to be overweight. I'm doomed. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think that is the number one excuse. And it's probably the least common factor. It's less, it's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. More common is bad habits (laughs) that have been passed on within the family and the actual genetic tendencies to gain weight uh, are very, very uh, few and far between. So, uh, on our list of eight, it is um, still something we will look at, but it is usually the last thing um, yeah. uh, on the list as far as the actual cause.
2: Yeah, your genetics are not; they don't have to be your destiny. Yes. And so even though you're born with these genetics and we can't change it, that's not an excuse to not look at these other issues. All right. So let's start getting into some of these more important things from our perspective. And all the things that we're going to talk about are things that we can manage or fix or improve upon. Yes. So the next big one is stress. And there's a lot that go into, goes into stress. And we've done podcasts about stress. Yeah but how about you describe a little bit on how stress is going to impact weight?
1: Well, I'm just going to say it this way. There are two reactions your body has with stress. Some people will not be able to eat because of stress and lose weight. Mm-hmm. And we see these people, um, um, very thin. They don't look healthy because of the stress. Mm-hmm. And so that is a uh, one reaction. The body can have with chronic stress. The reaction tends to be the exact opposite, where they start to gain weight. And so if you've gone, uh, you know, through a season of acute stress and you've lost weight, uh, that is common, but chronic mild stressors actually tend to cause us to gain weight. So the first thing we look at when someone's not losing weight and they seem to be eating properly, and I'm going to say this about the calorie in, calorie out. Mm-hmm you still have to pay attention to that and especially the sneaky calories. Like uh I have people that have uh, come in saying, well, I just have a coffee a day. Well, it turns out it's a, a fully loaded Starbucks, uh, half latte, half, you know, with all the, the trimmings and stuff. And it's 980 calories. Well, that's a, that's a, almost a full day worth of, uh, of calories that are not a great source of calories. So, Alcohol's that way too. Alcohol's right. that way too, like, yes. Like
2: it, people get caught on that. The, a, lot. a lot of times it's the liquid <laughs> calories, they just add up. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, pop or soda, you know, diet yeah. cokes, and even though these things are low calorie, they can still affect your metabolism yes. negatively. Yeah, we'll
1: talk about the, the, <laughs> yeah. the diet uh, uh, beverages and weight gain. Yeah.
2: But when it comes to the stress part of it,
1: it really, the chronic stressors uh, can be mental, chemical, or physical. And um, the mental stress is a little easier to identify because people, just they tend to know, yeah, I'm, I'm stressed out. Uh, another one is if you have a sleep disorder, and we've spoken a lot about sleep on many of our podcasts, but, it, but we're just not sleeping as well uh, as we used to because of the lifestyle
2: that we're living and, and the different things that can impact our sleep. And that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Stress, too, has both a direct and indirect effect on weight, mental stress, because sometimes the mental stress is going to cause hormone changes, which we'll get into, but it's also often leads to, you mentioned bad habits, stress eating is very common, and that's more of an indirect effect of stress, where the stress leads to a problem with the calorie in, calorie out issue.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about another uh, type of chemical stress, one that's very common, especially in women. Uh, women who have uh, in the past tend to have uh, heavier uh, uh, periods and their cycles been off or something like that. Uh, or in men, uh, if they have stress leading to small bleeding ulcers, things like that, you can end up getting uh, low ferritin. Low ferritin uh, is basically your iron stores and low iron uh, mimics hypothyroid. It mimics fibromyalgia. So the common findings with low ferritin are brain fog, muscle and joint pain, weight gain, headaches, uh, and even uh, sleep disturbances. So a lot of people can benefit just by getting their ferritin checked. uh, Or if uh, you're um, experiencing any of these things, uh, identifying right away, and it's a simple fix usually, Of replacing the iron now if you're not absorbing iron because of hypochloridia which we've talked about in past uh, podcasts which is low stomach acid Mm -hmm. then that has to be addressed so there can be some other things associated with it but something to help right away is bring the iron back in because a lot of people will start gaining weight and thinking it's their thyroid or thinking it's the the stress response and uh, they can start by uh, making sure your iron levels are good Mm
2: -hmm. yep all right let's talk um I think we've, we've talked about stress a lot, like we said in other podcasts. And I think anything that we've talked about in those podcasts is relevant to this. Yes. Yep. So we won't rehash everything. No, I encourage to you to
1: go back yeah. and look at some of the, those other podcasts.
2: Yeah. So an offshoot to that, something I don't think we've discussed before is a concept that you developed called metabolic switching.
1: Yeah. Metabolic switching is something I noticed early in my career where people would come in and they would say, I, I'm exercising, but I feel worse afterwards. Mm -hmm. And there's a component of that where you exercise and then you're producing the lactic acid of the byproducts of the metabolism. Mm -hmm. And you can feel a little yucky uh, from that until you clear it. But that wasn't what was happening with some of my patients. Two, three weeks into their exercise program, they were making no gains and they were gaining weight. And uh, we were checking just how their brain was uh, communicating with the muscles And we were basically finding that their brain was perceiving the exercise as traumatic, Mm -hmm. therefore shutting the muscles down. And when the muscles don't get the proper signaling from the brain, that means the brain is also not sending the signals to the blood vessels to deliver the fuel to the muscles to actually burn up the calories. Mm -hmm. So these people are actually exercising and gaining weight. So a completely different problem. So this is more of a brain problem. And it's very similar to the stress response, but there's a select group of people uh that have an exercise intolerance that comes from uh the brain itself and that can shut the 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 muscles down completely so their metabolism becomes sluggish from a neurologic perspective not from a hormone perspective although usually it's stress or hormones that cause that mm-hmm. uh or inflammation within the body uh, but it's gotten to the point where your brain is saying no 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 more of this yeah. And they are shutting themselves down. Yeah. It's a protective mechanism. It's a protective mechanism. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of brilliant, actually, Mm -hmm. where it's saying, no, you're going to hurt yourself, so don't (laughs) exercise. So the brain actually shuts down the muscles. But then you're looking in the mirror saying, (laughs) i got to lose weight. (laughs) And so it's one of those things where... Uh, it was very very tricky and so we to f- help correct that we worked on mindset and I have a, a class that I teach here at the clinic called the mindset class and uh, I'll just say this part of it if you if you go on a treadmill and you're cursing that treadmill the entire 30 minutes or hour that you're on the treadmill you might be inducing the metabolic switching component yeah. and so we 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 ask that you guard your thoughts be very very careful Dr. Eamon uh, who runs the Amen Clinic, and I believe it's in California, um, wrote a book, uh, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, many decades ago, <laughs> but it's still relevant today. Mm-hmm. And he actually measured um, the changes of automatic negative thoughts in the brain. He used uh, different types of PET scans and, and uh, um, radiographic imaging to determine blood flow. And when people had these negative thoughts, it impacted different areas of the brain. So... That's what we're measuring when we see your muscles actually being shut down from these automatic negative thoughts. Uh, and you can't exercise. So many times people come in and they say they've been on a, a great routine with their, their personal trainer. They love their personal trainer. They love the physical therapist. Uh, they feel like it's the right thing to do, but their body just doesn't respond to the exercise. And then we find out they have metabolic switching. Mm. So we get them, their brain communicating to the muscles better. And then all of a sudden, uh, things start to improve. It's a big, big difference when you get the brain communicating to the muscles better.
2: Yeah. I want to mention something also. We had Dr. Tanay on a podcast where we talked a little bit more about physical assessment. Yeah. I think that's an important point that can be overlooked, especially come New Year's and New Year's resolutions. People want to hit the gym and they want to hit it hard. And how many people burn out just because they can't sustain that. Learning what your body is capable of at the outset is an important thing, even if it's not very much. It's it's critical to meet your body where it's at, because absolutely. like you said, the the 30 minutes of cursing on the treadmill, if your body's not ready for that, <laughs> even if you're not cursing, that can be a stressor just because you're biting off too much more yeah, than you can chew. Absolutely.
1: 20 years ago, I wrote a book, and the first chapter was called Awareness. And that's what we're really asking you to have is awareness. Now, that doesn't mean you should feel good with exercise through the whole experience. But you have to go through it and have awareness. You should exercise, feel some of the soreness, delayed soreness, and it should clear within a few hours to days. That's normal. And then as you keep doing the exercise over weeks and then over a month or two, it should become easier and uh, to do the exercise that you were doing before. You should be uh, better conditioned. It's not going to be easy in the beginning if you haven't been exercising for 10 years or 15 years. So it's one of those things where you really want to have awareness of what's working for you and what's not. And that can take weeks and even months to identify that yourself. But but knowing what your body is capable of, you want to push it just a little bit past what it can handle most times to get an idea of whether or not you're making gains yeah, it's a
2: tightrope, especially when it you're is. not used to exercising to, to know how to push yourself enough, but not so much that you're stressing your body. Yeah. But that's where a good personal trainer or you know, we do a lot of these assessments that we yeah. talk about too, getting somebody else to assess your progress is a good way of helping you learn how to measure your own body's capacity. I
1: remember playing football as as a youth and, uh, uh, I would, we'd go out and the coaches would just run us and we'd get back into game to try and get us into game shape and it would take weeks. But I remember even from, uh, when I was young and and in shape, I'd be two or three days and I couldn't move. Mm -hmm. And that was just normal back then. They just kind of pushed you until that, but I recovered in two or three days. And then all of a sudden within a couple of weeks, I was in game shape and we're able to go, go, go. And so, uh, I'm no longer a youth, <laughs> so I have to pay much more attention uh, to to that. I do a lot less to, to induce the same amount of discomfort, I'm going to say. Sure. Um, and that's the same for
2: a lot of us. But you want to keep going with that. All right. Let's go to the next topic. This is a big one. This is probably the biggest topic that's also very overlooked. And there's a couple of really good books on this topic. Um, but the topic is hormones, hormone yes. imbalance. In the United States, the the traditional medical ideas is that hormones aren't going to dictate weight gain and weight loss very much. That's a concept that in Europe is different. I know Eastern Europe, where a lot of the research comes out of for, um, like there's caliper testing we're going to talk about, for instance, Yes. measuring fat distribution in different parts of the body, that yep. comes from Europe and people who have... I think Prague is one of the main areas where a lot of this was developed. But hormone imbalances can be sneaky reasons for why you can start to gain weight in very particular areas. Yes. And so we want to talk about a variety of these um, different hormones. I think it would be worth discussing the caliper thing Yeah, because there's 14 different areas that can be assessed, and they all mean something different. So for me, this
1: was one of the coolest things when I was taught this. This was one of the coolest things that... Uh, um, I had heard and I've, I've had some amazing lecturers and mentors. And this, this one is one of those things that really, um, was fascinating to me. Essentially, where you store your bat, your, your fat on your body can tell you about the potential hormone imbalance. Mm-hmm. Now it's not a hundred percent. There are, there are backup hormone issues, but, uh, for the most part, uh, it's pretty accurate with, uh, with the primary hormone.
2: And, and Dr. Josh is going to go through that list here. We're going to talk about a few of them. Yep. So I'll go through, um, again, these 14 things. Some of the hormones are going to overlap. Um, if you want to chime in just as you see fit, otherwise we'll get through this list and we can talk about sure. each hormone Sounds good in depth as well. Yeah. So areas one and two, the chin, or maybe the under chin, we'll yeah. call it, right? The, um, and then the, the cheeks. Those are places that you'll first notice fat loss or gain. So yes. chubbiness in the cheeks, which can also be swelling. And I think that's, that's something that we'll, that we'll discuss in a minute. But, but fat gain there is a, is a early indicator, not necessarily a specific hormone, but just an overall indicator. Triceps, so the back part of the arms, those are related to testosterone and estrogen levels. And so it's very, I think this is a common complaint for people or their their gain, uh, wings, I guess, essentially is what people call them, right? Yeah, wings or
1: the chicken, you know, people will come in and say, I've got these chicken flaps now. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, these, these flappy arms. And one of my favorite things is when we talk about this, I love doing this talk. In a room full of people, because as hurt. you go through each body part, everyone's like looking at their. You and I just did and that we just do that ourselves. That's what it reminded me of that. Unconsciously,
2: Dr. Josh and I just checked our our triceps <laughs> to see how we're doing. Yeah. and so it's. I would say for testosterone and estrogen, it's really imbalanced. You don't know yeah. necessarily is it too high, too low? Is there a problem? Whether you're male or female, it'll be different. Yeah. biceps, which are the opposite side of the top part of the arm. Um, that can be related to testosterone as well. Um, and really the skin thickness in these areas, I should mention that because that's noted through a lot of these areas. You can pinch and, 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 and test for skin thickness too. That should be essentially as thin as your eyelid skin. Yeah. Which I, I, I'm not sure if anybody will hardly even qualify for that.
1: No. So, and, and that's why uh, when we use calipers, they're very specific calipers to, to measure these, this thickness there. And one of the things that, um, where this information comes from is, uh, Charles Poliquin, uh, did some research years ago with the Canadian government and the military and, and elite athletes. And he measured, uh, thousands of, uh, people with these calipers and then got their lab testing. So there's a core correlation there that uh, occurred, and they were able to put uh, with statistical probability these connections together. So uh, that's where this research and this data comes from. And, and Charles Poliquin,
2: who's now passed, uh, um, really had some brilliant information there. Yeah. All right. The next one is the chest. And I think it's specifically the side of the chest. Yeah, right in the of, pec area. Yeah, there. kind of the front part of the armpit. That's related to estrogen imbalance, and men and women, again, will kind of show this differently. For men, it can often be alcohol-induced, yep. and beer in particular, because hops in beer are, is an estrogen-mimicking natural compound, yeah. so be careful about that, guys. Yeah,
1: guys, when you get that beer going, you end up getting uh, the little beer gut, but you also get the, uh, the breasts that come with that, and we all... We all know the body
2: type uh, when we see that one. Yep, exactly. In women, the quality of breast tissue can also change with this. And fibrocystic de- dense breasts can be more of an elevated estrogen sign too.
1: Yeah, we see that. It's one of the things we look at with thermography. And uh, Dr. Josh, I know, um, is... Uh, trained in and looking at thermographies and reading them as well and mm-hmm. so yeah. that is not one of the things that you actually look for is change in that density in, in that area and that gives us some clues as to potential estrogen dominance estrogen
2: issues yep we even see in kids something men and, or boys I should say yeah. gynecomastia which is yeah. the development of breast tissue in boys and that happens more often than you'd think and that's often a hormone estrogen problem too yeah and there are other things that mimic estrogen which we're going to get to
1: mm-hmm. uh, with uh, some of the other conversation here that can also cause that same scenario but that is actually one of my favorite things to treat is the gynecomastia in in teenage boys because that is so hard on their psyche and um so hard on them and then when they realize it's a chemical imbalance that usually comes from our environment um some form uh, just the just
2: the relief that comes with that uh, has been quite something with the, at least with the patients i've treated yep all right so so far the arms and the chest we've talked a lot about estrogen and testosterone uh, the next area is going to be different under under the armpit. So that's kind of you know we talked about the the chest being the front part of the armpit. Now we're going to the back part of the armpit yeah, where the here. lat comes in yep, basically. Exactly. Yep. And so that is more. There's going to be two things here: thyroid dysfunction, which we'll get into more. Yep. And low thyroid hormone in particular, but also a need for heavy metal detoxification. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting. one. Yep. And I think these are going to be connected too, because heavy metals are going to be impacting iodine, yes. which is going to impact thyroid function. Yep.
1: All right. And remember we're looking for not just uh the the skin uh as there's a hormone imbalance what happens is there's a slight layer of fat that then gets attached to the skin. So back in back in the day and the the older people listening to this pi- podcast will uh, know this saying uh you can't pinch an inch or can you pinch an inch uh that's how they used. People used to. There's commercials where you used to say, "Can you pinch an inch?" And basically, trying to take a look at the skin. That's what we're looking at here. We're just going back to that lat area, and this is true for all the areas, and just seeing if there is fat attached to the surface of the skin, this the underlying surface of the skin, mm-hmm. and that's going to tell us about uh, the hormone imbalance. And and when you start to um,
2: have fat in those areas, that's when we start to see. Potential challenges. Yeah, let's hit heavy metals real quick. Yes, because heavy metals, people would think, "Oh, I, I don't think I have any heavy metals," but uh, we see mercury and, and lead in particular quite yeah, often, quite a bit. And what are your what are the main things that you look for to identify those those two issues? So, uh, lead is easier to identify in um,
1: um, people when they're a little older uh, because it can affect memory. Uh, I will say this, women in particular, as you enter uh, menopause, you have bone loss and lead tends to be stored in bone. But then as it gets released, it can affect the brain. Mercury tends to be stored in fat. Uh, and then which is more the brain and breast tissue and uh, other fat sources in the body. And so um, they can interfere with all kinds of different uh, uh, actions in the body. Uh, if lead is Early on, and it's something you're exposed to. It's going to break down the barrier system of your digestive system. Uh, there's a barrier called MT barrier, and it'll deplete that 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 system, and then you ha- you end up with leaky gut and other problems. With kids, um, it can induce autism uh, with newborn babies, and that's one of the challenges when they're exposed to any type of mercury uh, or uh, equivalent uh, metal uh, including lead and some of the other heavier metals but lead is the heaviest of the metals uh, that uh, we tend to find and then uh, mercury
2: is pretty dense as well mm-hmm. and mercury is common in those silvery amalgam fillings yeah. and that used to be more common several decades ago yeah but I, I would say the vast majority of people that we see have those or yeah. have had those and those amalgam silver amalgam fillings are 50% mercury by weight Yeah. and as they degrade um, whether it's from, from pressure stress, from chewing, or grinding your teeth. You know, that happens at night with some people. Yeah. Even hot liquid can cause that mercury to off gas, and yeah. that's, that can be a significant exposure. All right. Next, we're going to move back a little bit to below the shoulder blade. Um, and this is a hard place to reach yourself. This is why we do the caliper testing here. But below the shoulder blade is related to blood sugar, blood sugar regulation. Um, specifically, so blood sugar and insulin, we'll discuss yes. that in a bit too, but that has a lot to do with, um, carbohydrate metabolism.
1: Yeah. How you actually are breaking down the, the carbs. So, um, remember when we were talking about calorie in, calorie out. You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you could be eating 50 grams of carbs or you could be eating pretty low carbs, but because your body's not using it all that well, and and getting it to where it needs to be it could be causing a problem so i've had people come in on low carb diets um and still have that area of their uh, back uh, producing fat and then sure enough we see an insulin uh, resistance scenario or reactive hypoglycemia um on their lab work and so very very common for that one even even for people
2: who are eating semi-low uh, carbs. Yep. there's just not knowing what to do with the carbs. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more again. Um, another issue in that below the shoulder blade area is inflammation. And yeah. You should consider heart disease and other inflammatory things going on, maybe if, if that shows up. All right, low back. And so this is... Kind of the, not quite love handle, but kind of behind that area. Yeah, in the back part. Uh, but that has a lot to do with toxins, and that's kind of a general statement. Toxins, but also gut dysbiosis, which is the imbalance of bacteria or fungus or viruses in your intestinal tract. Yeah. Um, clearing out, and really, I mean, we test even muscles in that area that show us the same thing. That yes. whole area, that core area, especially in the back part in the back, is a big signal both from a muscle Muscle activation and fat distribution um, signal for digestive health. Yes. All right. Hips. Um, this is the one we get the most yeah, exactly. <laughs> most uh, questions about. Yes, and so this would be more love handle and kind of going down, but that's blood sugar and insulin control again, yep. carbohydrates again. Yeah.
1: You know? So uh, th- this, just to be clear, this is more like above. When we say hips, this is the one that's a little
2: bit higher, not the one, not the thigh, not the thigh yep. hips. Yeah, so this yep. is the high, high part of the hips. Yep. Next is belly. Yep. And this is a very specific one to, to the stress conversation because this is cortisol. Cortisol yes. is the stress hormone, and so this is maybe more common in, in men to see this a yep. bit is the, the apple-shaped, um, you know, belly distribution of fat. Um, and that, that stress can be, again, a lot of different things. But uh, alcohol stress, liver, dehydration, even like we talked about before, um, sleep stress and chemical stress can all cause that area to, to in- increase. Next, we alluded to this already, is the quadriceps. That's the front of the upper leg, and that's estrogen. Yep. And this is more female, right? Yes. You see the pear shape yep. where it's kind of buttoned into thighs is going to be more of the estrogen imbalance issue. And especially if you've, and you mentioned xenoestrogens or or toxins from the environment that can affect that too.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, environmental toxins that can mimic estrogen. And so they become estrogen disruptors. And we do see that fat distribution with women on the thighs uh, go there. Uh, Funny enough with guys, uh, when they're exposed to a lot of the xenoestrogens, they will tend to have more gallbladder problems and liver problems, which means they can have uh, the cortisol
2: area show up more uh, with the xenoestrogens. It's like a secondary stress. It's effect. a secondary effect, stress, yeah. 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 Hamstrings, we test that too, but that's really the same thing, toxins and estrogens again. And then the knee or above the knee, um, some people have it's like right by your kneecap yeah. you got those little pouches of fat right there yeah that's liver again liver and toxin um and then alcohol and it's kind of the same thing a bit different because it's a bit more liver specific well,
1: and and um there's a there's a caveat to that one and that is um sleep uh, disorders to go with that one uh that that's one of the the go-tos for uh a sleep disorder and that wasn't on the general list but uh Paul Quinn um uh, mentioned that one Mm-hmm. Uh, when last summer I saw him speaking. And so that one, I, I will, as soon as I assess that and see that with a patient I'm working on, I ask them about their sleep. And a lot of times they say, how'd you know I had a sleep disorder? And I said, cause of your
2: knees. <laughs> Everybody loves that. Yep. yep. <laughs> All right. Last but not least, the calves or the, the lower legs. Yep. And that has a couple of different things. Toxicity. Again, that's a common theme throughout but growth hormone, which we haven't talked much about, and yeah. then sleep again. Growth hormone doesn't get a whole lot of, of press, we'd say, but yeah. it's but it's gonna be indirectly related to insulin. And especially with, with kids as they're growing, that, that can be a thing. But we don't wanna have excess growth hormone as no. we age either. No. Excess growth hormone is a just like it sounds, a growth signal. Just like insulin is, insulin yes. and growth hormone are, are insulin and growth hormone are very very intertwined. And if they're in excess, they're going to cause your body to build things. And if you have a lot of calories around, what are they going to build? A lot of it's fat. Yes. All right, and that's that's the fourteen main areas. Anything else that you look at from a fat distribution perspective?
1: Um, no, I, I do I do uh, look at uh, everything in general as far as. Uh, uh, one area is it is rarely just one area that you're storing fat in um, and it can be really hard to see it yourself uh, in the beginning. But uh, when we do the calipers and stuff, you start to see the measurements. It gets much, much uh, more detailed. I shouldn't say that most women know when if they've started to gain weight where it is um g- guys are oblivious <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys be. look in the mirror and they say not too shabby and they've got like 60 pounds to lose <laughs> but uh yeah just uh, take take the the general concept and then as soon as we get into a certain point where we're just if it's calorie in calorie out you're just eating too many calories uh, a lot of times that's just global You've, you start gaining weight in all of these areas mm-hmm. So that's a good way to, um, to look at whether it's a, a hormone scenario versus a calorie in, calorie out. And then one of the other ones we're going to be talking about, inflammation, mm-hmm. is also um, a global. When you're inflamed, it will cause fat um, to be laid everywhere, basically. Yeah. And uh,
2: again, Charles Poliquin would say inflammation equals fat, fat equals inflammation. Let's not go too much into that yet. Let's make sure we cover the hormones before we move on. So we're going to highlight, looks like five hormones that we've talked about a lot. Um, some of, one of them, we'll start with this one. This is one that we didn't mention on any of the caliper testing, but it's leptin. Yeah. Leptin is a, it's a hormone that changes with satiety and, and fat. And we, we, we find that it's elevated in, in certain situations. I always tell my patients three main things that you got to think of if you have high leptin. One is just the presence of body fats. And unfortunately, high leptin, you get into this vicious cycle where if you have body fat, you're going to have high leptin. You can get something called leptin resistance, which then causes you to develop more fat. And that's not good. Now, the other two, one we've alluded to, one is gut dysfunction. You can have gut dysfunction or dysbiosis causing high leptin. And then mold is the third one. Yeah. And that's the sneaky one. It we is. See. Yeah. Because we can have individuals with sky high leptin and you look at the person and they're not overweight or you can see that they are overweight and mold then might be one of the hidden triggers that's causing their weight change. Mold and some of the, some of the other co-infections that can come with
1: that, because I just had that exact same scenario with a very thin uh, person who had high leptin on repeat labs Uh, has a little bit of gut stuff, but we end up finding a pretty significant severe mycoplasm infection Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. triggering, that we think is triggering that. But in order to, to see if we're making progress, um, with their particular, um, pain syndrome, we're going to be measuring leptin Mm -hmm. to actually see if we're making
2: gains. It's uh, a, it's amazing how the body works. That reminds me of something I want you to touch on quick. The idea of skinny fat people. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Absolutely. I am one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, skinny fat people, there
1: are some people who will, let's just say calorie in, calorie out. There are people who will um, put fat on and they put it on the outside. So you can tell they're actually obese because they, they actually put it, it's on the skin and they're easier to measure. Skinny fat people is not good it's it's actually a little uh harder on the system and they store fat internally usually around their organs and if you suffocate your organs um they become less functional and so so you can have the same and and the tricky thing with skinny fat is you you actually you don't look all that obese but you're your function internally will be the same as someone with significant obesity, and so, for example, with myself uh, and many my patients that fall into that category, um, I, I have uh, had a sleep disorder and have a sleep disorder I've constantly managed my uh, entire life and. Um, if I get over 100 grams of carbs, start storing it around my liver. I also happen to have a genetic uh, disorder with iron that I have to make sure gets cleared. Otherwise, the liver gets uh, a little uh, in trouble that way too, and then it can't handle as many uh, carbohydrates. And you can end up getting stuff like what's called uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or alcoholic fatty liver disease, and those can really um, wreak havoc on your organs. And so paying attention to the those scenarios you can people will judge health sometimes by weight and that's uh, by how they look in the mirror and that's not always a good way to do it you have to go by function and so for me when I when I can't exercise like I normally would or I start to see little dysfunction creeping in there I know something's not quite right and that's that's
2: we got to look at so it can be very very deceptive all right, thanks. Let's go to thyroid hormone next. Um, hypothyroid. We may have talked about this before too. I think we did on the lab yeah. testing, yep. the lab testing podcast. Hypothyroid is especially. You can have a subclinical hypothyroid situation where your thyroid hormone is suboptimal, and it's not often caught through standard medical testing because uh, we've talked about this. But the standard medic the standard medically is to test TSH. TSH is the hormone coming from your brain to communicate with your thyroid. The assumption being if that's normal, your thyroid's fine. Yeah. But we say all the time that that's not the case. Thyroid hormone, the way that I like to think about it, it's like your spark plug. Yes. It's getting your body to burn energy. It, this sets your metabolism. It's very,
1: very important. And it's, it's probably the most sensitive gland in our body to our current environment. Mm-hmm. And so we see a lot of dysfunction with it. And it's not being measured properly. So I would encourage people to go back to our, our podcast on, uh, the labs because we really dissect the thyroid, um, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But there, there's so many things that can interfere with the thyroid. And a lot of times people will read about thyroid, go to their doctor and say, I think I have thyroid and that's why I'm, I can't lose weight. And they'll check the TSH, say, oh, no, you're fine. Mm-hmm. But the reality is they could have a, a low active thyroid. They could have antibodies against their thyroid. Um, and also one of the things that kind of sneaks in there is that people who are acidic, if their body's really acidic, their hormones in general work at about a 50% uh, efficacy. So mm-hmm. even if your thyroid hormones are normal,
2: if you're acidic, they may not be working all that well. Yeah. What's, uh, I'm going to pause here. What's an indicator that you might be acidic? Oh, good question. Um,
1: well, pH of your urine. <laughs> sure, yeah, you can test that. Yep. You, could, you could test that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, people who um, – uh, I'll give you an example. If you look up some of the symptoms of diabetes, uh, they a lot of these people are in what's called metabolic acidosis. So you can get all kinds of different things from arms and legs going asleep, to sleep to – um uh, your urine smelling uh, more, not ammonia is a different thing, but very similar to that where you're just uh, um, having some foul smelling urine that's not associated with the infection. Uh, and uh, generally speaking, if you consume things that are alkaline and you feel better. So if your body craves vegetables and you feel better eating vegetables, you may be uh, acidic as well. Uh, also, people tend to have
2: more headaches and lethargy and fatigue when they're acidic. We run a test called a urine organic acid test. Yeah. Too. This is one of our favorite ones, and we discussed it. But it tells us a whole boatload of information about what parts of your metabolism are causing that acidity.
1: Yeah. The crazy thing is, the people who have who don't make enough stomach acid end up getting infections in their GI tract or imbalances in their GI tract, causing a high amount of body acid and then we see all types of dysfunction because our our body has to be in nice homeostasis it's got to be nice and balanced uh with its ph so it's acid alkaline uh part of it
2: all right anything else you want to say about thyroid
1: no there's a lot there but uh you just know that thyroid's a a big big um big one for the the weight loss not happening so
2: yeah. So cortisol is next. This, I mean, we talked a lot about stress. That's highly involved mm-hmm. with stress. Cortisol comes from a gland called your adrenal glands, and you can have adrenal fatigue or adrenal stress. Um, what are some signs that you might be in such a thing? Um. So
1: if you're in adrenal fatigue, uh, adrenal stress is different. Let's start there. So in the beginning, when you have stress, you release gen- generally, you release adrenaline, uh, and that's for acute stress, like if a tiger's chasing you, the adrenaline says danger, helps say danger, and it gets you out of there. But long-term stress, we start to release cortisol. Cortisol is released by the adrenal glands. And um, the way I like to think about it, and this is an oversimplification, but when you have long-term stress, it's kind of like in the old days when you didn't couldn't get enough food. I'm assuming you couldn't get enough food in the old days because <laughs> we have an abundance now. Um, but if you went too long without food, your body would have that chronic stress response and it would produce cortisol to store fat around your organs to make sure that they are um, going to survive. Mm-hmm. So just like we talked about the skinny fat person, um, for example, for me, my sleep disorder induced a stress response in the middle of night and my cortisol would rise because of that, because it was chronic, not acute. And then without even eating, I would have fat stored around my liver. And uh, I remember when I first discovered that, uh, I had an MRI done uh, and assessed the thickness of, uh, of the fat and where I stored it. And the, the doctor who was doing it, he and I were actually um, working together to, to put together some uh, uh, programs and protocols but uh, he was amazed at my amount of muscle mass that I had in my rib cage and the amount of fat around my liver and uh, said, you're, you're eating too many carbs. And I said, I'm ketogenic. I'm not eating any carbs. <laughs> and so we explored um, why that happened. And then eventually that's when I found the sleep disorder. And so uh, that scenario of chronic stress can uh, impact uh, the ability of cortisol to release, which will ultimately have you store fat. That's what it does as a protective mechanism,
2: because we're not meant to be under chronic stress. We're really not. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the next part then. Estrogen, and kind of as a side point, testosterone. Estrogen is the one that gets the bigger the bigger piece. We mentioned xenoestrogens or toxic estrogens. Let's, yeah. let's start there even, because... A lot of the chemicals that we've put into the environment in the last 100 years are estrogen and hormone-disrupting types of chemicals.
1: Yeah, a lot of of them are things like pesticides. So we can't really get away from them. We eat organic as much as possible. We encourage people to eat organic as much as possible. But even with that, uh, it's just everywhere right now. So Mm -hmm. what we've done to our food is uh, really, really impacting our hormones quite a bit. And and I, I just want to encourage people, when you travel and you go around the world, you will see the difference from United States to the rest of the world, and a lot of it has to do with what we've done to our food supply. First of all, our portions are a lot bigger here in the United States compared uh, to overseas. Um, overseas, they tend to walk more than we do here in the United States, but our food is contaminated with endocrine disruptors compared to the rest of the world. Now... We are influencing the rest of the world. <laughs> Canada, where I originate in particular, we're just behind the United States. And although the United States leads the world in obesity trends, um, other countries are catching up as they adapt some of our
2: philosophy around food. We're world leaders. In the wrong way on this one. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yes, Estrogen I like to think about its interplay with testosterone because it differs from men and women, yes for men, especially if there's existing body fat men are going to take their testosterone that they make and convert that into estrogen with an enzyme called aromatase yeah that's a bad deal because then you get more estrogen out of your testosterone and then you're going to make more body fat out of that yeah that's a that's the circle of life when it comes to the, the <laughs> yeah. frustration exactly. Women have it oppositely where women will get um, testosterone build up inappropriately in situations of stress because their estrogen can uh, convert in that direction. Testosterone symptoms in women uh, turns into PCOS is really the most common uh, indicator there of a testosterone issue. Which I want to just
1: highlight that for a second. PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome and there, for a lot of women, they will be doing everything right as far as exercise and diet and not losing weight. And PCOS is a whole topic unto its own, mm-hmm. but has the combination of estrogen and insulin and, and hormone imbalances, uh, that can really plague, um, um, these
2: women in as far as just being able to, to lose the weight. Yeah. yeah. And the high estrogen or the high testosterone symptoms in women that are going to be acne is a big one. Yeah. But male pattern Changes right hair growth where you don't want hair even a deepening of the voice uh, if it's if it's extreme but acne I think is one of the big indicators that we see yes all right anything else you want to say about estrogen xenoestrogens
1: uh, no that's a big topic but uh, yeah there's there are uh, lists of uh, chemicals that mimic estrogen and I did a lecture years ago um, down at Duke University and. Uh, they, I was speaking about the toxins and they were collecting the database uh, down there and it was well over uh, 90,000 chemicals that the FDA has not had a chance to assess yet as far as how it affects our body. So just keep in mind that the current list of end- endocrine disruptors or chemicals that mimic estrogen, there's a... Slew of of more tens of thousands that we haven't even
2: assessed yet.
1: Yeah. So that's that's a big part of it as well.
2: Yeah. That reminds me of something that I find frustrating and interesting at the same time. BPA, which a lot of people have seen, BPA-free water bottles or plastic, right? Yeah. BPA is an endocrine disruptor that's been removed from a lot of, pl- but not all, plastics. The hidden secret of that is when BPA is used in the plastic to help it to mold. And if you take the BPA out, you gotta replace it with something. Yeah. I think BPS is one of those things. And it's something that's probably equally as bad as BPA. Right. (laughs) But nobody, it's, you know, it's not a buzzword, so people don't go looking for it. Right. So plastics in general are a big source of toxins, even if it says BPA free. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk insulin next. Um, insulin, and we've alluded to this throughout, but insulin is your, it's the key that opens up your cells to allow blood sugar in for metabolism's sake. Yeah. We as a as a country tend to have diabetes, right? And obesity, yep. diabetes is the is the mismanagement of insulin. Most individuals in this country if they develop uh, diabetes later in life, it's called type 2 diabetes, which is really an offshoot of insulin resistance. Yes. Insulin resistance is when your body's cells start to ignore that key. They say, right. well, it doesn't work very well, so your body starts to produce more and more and more insulin. We test insulin on our standard blood panel for this very reason because you can find early, even in people who are 20, 30, even younger than that, frankly, teenagers oh, yeah. and kids, where their blood sugar levels are still normal, but their insulin is really high. Yes. The body is having to compensate for that insulin resistance by more and more and more insulin, eventually that burns out. You can't make an indefinite amount of insulin.
1: Yeah, and insulin uh, resistance and insulin problems you start to see way before you see diabetes and the, even the hemoglobin A1C start to rise mm-hmm. uh, in the lab work. So insulin is a very, very good uh, way to uh, measure that. And if you, at home, just as a something to do, you can look up uh, your hip-to-waist ratio. And measure that with uh, just a a measuring tape um, and uh, uh, look at the ratio. And I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they have them online. And if your hip to waist ratio is off, that's an early indicator of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: All right. So, insulin resistance and insulin, I think we should talk about from a diet perspective the opposite because you mentioned this briefly ketogenic. Yeah, ketogenic diets and even um, intermittent fasting are becoming more popular. The idea with both of those situations, and and a a ketogenic diet is kind of an all-the-time intermittent fasting in a way, or intermittent fasting. You're fasting for a set period of time throughout the day, 12 to 16 hours, depending on the person, trying to get your body into a either either a real fasted state or in the sense of a ketogenic diet a kind of a mimicked fasted state where your body will drop insulin allowing you to burn fat and ketones for fuel instead yes the the tricky part here cuz i i see this a lot a lot of people will attempt a ketogenic diet and they won't track the ratio of uh, they're called macros. The ratio yeah. of fat, protein, and carbs, and they won't track whether or not they're making ketones. Yes, I always draw a picture of this, where on one side the insulin and the blood sugar is high, and then it starts to drop. On the other side, starting low and then coming up is ketones. Yeah, in the middle is this valley, like the valley of sadness, and I always draw a <laughs> sad face there. <laughs> If you don't go all the way to ketogenic diet if that's what you're trying to do, you get into this mismanaged state of not being able to burn carbs for fuel and not having any ketones for fuel either, yeah. either. and that right there is a huge stress response. Well, which
1: means you're really not burning the fat You're not burning anything. <laughs> yeah, you're not burning anything. So,
2: you know, you're in the valley just want want want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Insulin out of all of these hormones is the easiest one from a diet and lifestyle perspective to control it is because yeah, your diet is is i mean if you eat carbs and some proteins but carbs in particular you're going to have insulin yeah and just for reference sake i personally
1: like to see insulin um below 10 and around 6 6.5 mm-hmm. is is great so you don't want insulin too low but you also don't want it uh, too high and um, just like it like you said it's the key that unlocks the the cell the door it's like having a rusty key that doesn't work we have to jiggle it and that is insulin resistance and so Mm -hmm. the blood sugar starts to stay outside the cell like diabetes versus getting inside so there's so much we can do with managing of insulin whether it be managing stress uh, moderate exercise uh, diet um, uh, fixing the sleep disorder things like that help quite a bit with uh, with uh, improving your insulin levels it's one of the it's one of the best things we can measure early
2: on and impact before disease even sets in. Yeah. One little comment before we move on, a really good way of dropping insulin, sorry, no, dropping blood sugar when you have an insulin problem is exercise. Yeah. Almost, for almost every situation, you need insulin in order to get blood sugar into the cell, but there's an exercise mechanism that's insulin independent. So you can get right. blood sugar to clear through exercise, even if you don't have the insulin properly regulated. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll feel better when that happens, mm-hmm. less sluggish. Yep. All right. Let's move on from hormones then. Let's talk microbiome. Uh, and again, something we had mentioned before. Uh, the, the clearest, most distinct way that I, that I remember this, there, there was a study done in mice where they took the microbiome, essentially a fecal transplant, which is a bit gross to think about, from a fat mouse yeah. and gave it to a skinny mouse. Yeah. That alone caused that skinny mouse to get fat. Yes. And the opposite is true, too. You can take the the stool from a skinny mouse, give it to the fat mouse, yeah. and they, they'll lose weight. Yeah. The pictures on, on that study are phenomenal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, they've done that with humans, too, at the Mayo.
2: Oh, yeah. 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 Fecal transplant is a thing. I wouldn't recommend it without doctor supervision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> always, Dr. Josh always has the gems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Take it to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. Point being here, though, is that the, the impact that weight has both, um, in both directions, really, on the state of the bacteria in your gut is, is a big thing. If you, and that's really diet control, too. To some degree, what you're eating is going to change the, env- the environment and the things living inside your gut. But altering your gut alone can have a big impact on weight because of what's living in there and also the inflammation too
1: yeah well we've talked about this a little bit on the lab too that one of the labs that we order a gut zoomer um, will uh, have a whole section of different bacteria that when they're out of balance will affect your metabolism and so they they can they're linked to findings of diabetes pre-diabetes uh, metabolic issues uh, some affect your hormones which then can affect the the metabolic issues so our our Gut biome, our bacteria, affect our ability uh, to lose weight quite a bit. And I'm going to say um, uh, another component, which we'll get to uh, on, on the next section. But uh, uh, if we are not having bowel movements properly, mm-hmm. that will impact things quite a bit. And our biome impacts the ability for the bowel movements quite a bit. Yeah, it
2: does. All right let's move on to inflammation then. Let's just go to that. Unless you have anything else on the microbiome you want to...
1: Listen. Yeah. No, that, to my last point, uh, this kind of just slides into that. Inflammation and detox, uh, we have a saying here, you are what you don't eliminate. Mm-hmm. And people have heard the saying, you are what you eat. But the reality is you are what you don't eliminate because it's still within you. Mm-hmm. And so as you are um, reabsorbing things within the intestinal tract, these toxins have to go somewhere and toxins will be stored in your best insulator in your body, which is fat. Mm -hmm. And if your fat is full of toxins, your immune system is an intelligent immune system. It will not want to liberate that fat or the toxins from that fat if it's in a toxic state. Mm -hmm. So if you're toxic, your body goes into a fat storage mode so that it can store the the, those things uh, in the toxins. That's Mm -hmm. why, a lot of times we see breast cancer with women who can't detoxify properly because the breast tissue is fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also, we've got a blood-brain barrier that protects our brain quite a bit. When that breaks down, uh, if the person's toxic, it does not take long. And we used to see this um, quite a bit. Actually, I see it quite a bit with my uh, Alzheimer's patients when there's a breach of that blood-brain barrier and they are toxic from other sources whether it be infection or uh, environmental, uh, you find all kinds of things uh, from the lab testing in their brain. And I had one gentleman with uh, over 50 findings, different mm-hmm. infections and, and toxins we identified in the brain. Um, and it was just, it was too much to be able to even work with. It was that, it was that extensive. And it happened very quickly when that blood brain barrier got breached.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. That's an important point with weight loss in general. Mm-hmm. I've seen people where they start to lose weight. And they become sick because of the toxic dumping that happens if they can't handle it. Often, doing a detoxification kind of promotion protocol prior to weight loss is a successful strategy on trying to get the weight loss initiated. Like you said, if you've got toxins floating around, you're not going to want to lose that fat. If you can prime the pump, so to speak, get the liver ready, the gallbladder, the, um, the bowels, even your lymphatic system, all of that has to work in order for you to clear the toxins and ultimately the fat.
1: Yeah, and as we age, if your bowels are backed up um, and you're reabsorbing um, the uh, toxins or the what you're supposed to be getting uh, rid of, uh, it goes into your lymph system. And so we'll see a lot of uh, women in particular with lymphatic problems, men to, But uh, uh, in their legs, because of the, the bowel problems, which comes from inflammation, comes from You know, a whole bunch of other things. Low thyroid can cause a a sluggish bowel. Um, Sleep disorders. Uh, Women who go through menopause and have hot flashes that wake them up all night, that's a sleep disorder. It's the same type of thing. So we do see a lot of these uh, uh, inability to detoxify properly, which includes the the bowels moving daily, uh, really set up uh, weight gain. The other side of it is inflammation, inflammation, Foods and things we put in our mouth can cause uh, inflammatory reactions. With the real serious ones, like celiac, we tend to see weight loss because they literally can't absorb anything. So at the severe end of the inflammatory food reactions, we have weight loss. Up until that point, though, the 70% of the food reactions induces inflammation, which causes weight gain. Mm-hmm. So that is something to uh, really keep an eye on and sugar. Uh, uh, wheat and dairy are the, th- are the three big ones, followed by corn.
2: Yeah. We need to, I think, pause and, and mention our, the body composition test that we run here. Because yeah. this is, once we get into inflammation, we have a test called uh, bioelectric impedance analysis. It's, uh, it's a body composition test that sends a kind of a weak electrical signal through your body. And depending on your body composition, that speed of that signal changes. And so we can read that and we can get a breakdown of fat and muscle and lymph and extra junk. I really like that test at the beginning when somebody's trying to uh, figure out the the course of weight loss because you might see that that person is just all fat gain. But more often than not, a person will be surprised at how much of that that weight that they have is not fat. It's it's fluid and yeah. toxins. Lymph,
1: yeah. Yeah, lymph People will come in and say, I need to lose 30 pounds. We're like, well, the good news is 26 pounds of that is lymph.
2: Yeah.
1: I said, you're full of toxins. We got we need to get that, that lymphatic uh, system moving on you. Hmm. Yep. All right. Last but not least. Last but not least, infection. Uh, and infection. this is one that uh, can be very, very tricky and hard to find, um, but I would say the one that is the most common for weight gain for me has to be fungal. Mm-hmm. And in particular, uh, candida and, and fungus can actually cause a couple things. It can cause uh, an increase in your uric acid on the labs and it causes insulin resistance. So the acids that are released by a lot of fungal can induce insulin resistance. Um, by the way, aspartame can do the same thing. And so, and even, uh, aspirin, excessive aspirin use can cause the same thing. So it's important to, uh, take a look at, um, the possibility of different infections. Uh, is there anything else that sticks out for you as far as infections and and weight gain in particular?
2: I think a lot of it is indirect as it comes to the gut. Yeah. Uh, Infections in the gut are a source of inflammation and microbiome disruption. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing I think of. uh, But any infection anywhere can have that same outcome.
1: Yeah, one weird one, because uh, we when we look at parasites, we see a lot of people lose weight because the parasites consuming, the, the tapeworms anyway, are consuming a portion of the calories. Mm-hmm. But um, the other parasites cause a disruption or inflammatory reaction in the bowels, and they actually end up having nutrient deficiencies. They're not absorbing the nutrients as much, and then you get a secondary Cause, whether it be the hormones or, or
2: or something like that, that ends up affecting their weight. Well, you mentioned the iron before, and the iron, the, the yeah, iron exactly. Iron anemia or the low ferritin can be caused by that very problem. And actually, certain parasites like the iron, right? Yes, They'll basically eat it. Yeah,
1: it's like food for them. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. All right, so that's the top eight things. I'm sure there's things that we missed but those are some of the big areas that that we hit. Yeah. Anything else in closing that you want to mention about weight loss?
1: Well, I would just encourage people to start with the basics, uh, start with moving and uh, walking to get the lymph going, to get the, the muscles burning the calories. Start with calorie in, calorie out, meaning just, uh, track it. Uh, we live in an age now where, we can, where we can easily track it. So, so go ahead and do that and uh, download an app to, to like MyFitnessPal or something along those lines to, uh, track your calories and then start to, Check off the other boxes of what could be uh, needed as far as uh, support that way. Mm-hmm. If you start with the basics, get your stress managed, calorie in, calorie out, uh, managed and monitored. Uh, get you moving to help with uh, inflammation and detoxification. Uh, if there's a problem with the, the microbiome, metabolic switching, hormones you won't be making much gains in two to three months and then further assessments probably needed. Hmm. But uh, those are the basics just to get started with. And I'm just going to say this, set yourself up for success. If you are trying to lose weight uh, and you are one of five in a family and there's junk food everywhere in that house, you've got to get people on board. So one of the things that I recommend is a sit down. And if you have a supportive family, great, if you don't, then, uh, you need to find some accountability buddies or something to work with to, to make some gains. And then you have a separate food area in your house that you go to and you, you only go to that. And if you don't have a supportive family and you're the one who helps make the meals, uh, then they're on their own making meals for a little bit. You teach them and then you delegate that responsibility and they'll have a new appreciation for what you do and how you eat when they need that help. Or that's just, my two cents. Or
2: just make them eat the good food you're going to eat. Yeah,
1: well, that's better. That's the best. <laughs> that's the yes. Yeah. That's what we ideally want. But uh, sometimes the stress of the resistance is uh, setting you up for failure. So... Try and do your best to to um, set yourself up for success and uh, and
2: uh, just start with the basics. My last comment, it's similar in a way. When I have somebody that comes in to see us and weight gain is one of their several things on their list, I warn them that the weight is not the first thing that we're going to be figuring out here. It's all of the other things that we just talked about. We have to get in line because if they've got headaches and they've got sleep issues and they've got all these other symptoms that are going on, those are often going to change first before the weight starts to come off. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of times we have people
1: come in for other issues, and uh, they end up losing weight as a side effect. And they're like, oh, I did, that wasn't even on my list. And, <laughs> and it's because it's it's rarely the, the cause. So yeah. it's usually these other things.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, that was great. Thank you. Hope you guys cool. enjoyed this. And uh, we will be back with more podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Snips podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.